0: This episode is brought to you by the Growth Strategy Programme, the only online programme for the founders of scaling consumer packaged goods brands that helps you set your business up for the next phase of serious growth. To find out when the next cohort starts, go to fionafitzconsulting.com, then click online courses and register your interest today. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Nice describes itself as a future wine company. It's a modern, accessible brand offering wine in cans and in boxes so that you can have a great glass of wine wherever you are, whenever, without having to buy or open a whole bottle. We speak to co-founders Lucy Wright and Jeremy May about their massive multi-channel growth since launch, the consumer and B2B customer frictions that they're solving, the importance they place on people and culture, and how they approach their recent round of funding. P.S. They're currently recruiting for some really important sales and marketing positions, so listen to the end of the show to hear what roles are up for grabs. Lucy Wright and Jeremy May
1: from NICE. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. How are you both doing? Brilliant. No, thank you so much for having us, Fiona. We're very excited to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So, Lucy, why don't we start? Will you tell us about NICE, what it is, where we can find it, what it looks
0: like? And then we can get into a little bit your growth story and how you came up with the idea to attack this market opportunity and how it's all been going.
1: Yes. So Nice is a future wine company with, to begin with, a brand of quality wine in a can. We've got a Sauvignon Blanc from Cote de Gascoigne in France, a Pale Rosé from the south of France, and an Argentinian Malbec. They come in 187 mil cans and 250 mil cans. And we can be found across the UK in supermarkets like Sainsbury's, cardo, at festivals Football stadiums, WH Smith, Whistle Stop, to name just a few customers. My goodness, you've got a huge amount of distribution. So, when did you launch? We launched in March 2019. So, that is fabulous.
0: Anyone got a sample can handy so we can see for the YouTube channel? I've got one. Yay. Okay, that's beautiful. And what flavour is that?
2: is actually a slightly dented one that I bought <laughs> from Sainsbury's yesterday because uh, it had been sat there for a while because it was dented. So I thought I'd give it a home. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, and I'm normally wearing a nice T-shirt of some sort as well.
0: So if I to decant that can of wine into a wine glass, am I getting a large wine or a small
2: wine in the pub? So this can is 250 millilitres, which so is large. a large um, glass of wine. Yeah, That's um, a very large glass of wine. Else, when, when we first launched the business, this was the only can size available for putting still wine in. Um, yeah. and so we were pretty beholden to this size can. Um, within about nine months of launching, um, our can manufacturer launched a 187 ml can specifically for wine. And so, um, so yeah, that, now we have two pack sizes.
0: Oh, so you do have two pack sizes? Yeah,
2: but even the 187 ml can is slightly larger than a, a medium.
0: Yeah, but that's probably just about right, isn't it? Because in a small wine is never enough, but one of those, I swear to God, I'd be on the street if I had one of those after a bad night's sleep with the baby. So, talk to us about the original opportunity. I think Lucy, you're going to take this one, aren't you? How did you see this opportunity? What friction or gap were you seeing for consumers in their lives, and what did you decide to do about it?
1: Sure. So, it's probably just worth mentioning where Jeremy and I met. Yeah, good idea. Uh, Jeremy, do you want to just say your intro and your experience at Propercorn and then I'll yeah, yeah. So,
2: I had been in the food and drink industry for about seven or eight years before um, starting Nice. Um, worked for a big business called Winterbotham Derby which was an importer of charcuterie and olives and antipasti and things and um, and then I joined Propacorn in the very early days and uh, led their kind of um, growth into export markets so um, was joined as their head of international worked there for three years um, and then set up as a consultant when I left in 2016 and was kind of freelancing uh, helping other small medium-sized businesses uh, build their export strategies worked for people like and Nut, Dalston's, um, and a few other um, businesses, and then ended up doing a year on the leadership team at uh, Vitacoco as their head of international, looking after Europe, Middle East and Africa.
0: We have exactly the same CV, it sounds like, up to a certain point. <laughs> really,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it was actually an ex-Vitacoco alumni, um, Joe Ben, who introduced me to Lucy, because um, at the time she was doing something very similar. So yeah, that's how we met.
1: Okay. And was it like just on a night out or...? No, it was a coffee in the morning, wasn't it? We Jeremy contacted me and said, I hear you're consulting. I'd love some advice. Can we meet? And we met in Borough Market in a cafe and we just des- we decided to meet at eight in the morning. And Jeremy, I was half an hour early as I am for everything. And Jeremy was like 20 minutes early. So I was like, this is obviously meant to be.
0: <laughs> Good start. I definitely wouldn't have been part of your gang then, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> given that I've already been late for this one this morning. So Lucy, had
1: you already got the idea for canned wine at this point or wine in a can, I should say? So at the time, so I started my food career. I launched a food business called Cuckoo, fresh out of uni with my best friend. We made on the go chilled bircher muesli pots, managed to get the products listed in the likes of Tesco, Waitrose, Sainsbury's. I looked after the sales side of things and fell in love with everything about the food and drink industry. And after four years of running that company, I eventually sold it, which sounds a lot more glamorous than it was. And then I jumped into consulting, helping SME food and drink businesses build their sales strategy, build their business plan, worked with the likes of Ollie's Olives, Doisy and Dam, et cetera. Can I ask you one question? Yes.
0: Would you ever go into chilled again?
1: Never at all. No. And it was chilled short shelf life. So it was really challenging. I know.
0: I think we've had this conversation over the past few months, when I'm helping younger companies start off and they're going into chilled and I feel like saying to them, don't do it. Me too. Actually, now I've started saying don't bloody do it. Just don't do it.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: It's too difficult unless you've got 28 days shelf life, but you're still going to be listed and chilled if you can get away with that. But it's just so hard if you can go into Frozen or Ambient, find a way.
1: If you can go into Ambient with no shelf life like our product, that's where it's happening. It's amazing. I was loving consulting. I was loving helping other businesses, but I I wasn't, you know, satisfied. I didn't see myself as a career consultant. I got introduced to Jeremy by Joe Ben, and then it was on the third time of us meeting at Lunch Trade Show. I said to Jeremy, look, I don't want to be a career consultant. I'd love to set up another business, obviously, in food and drink. And he said, I I feel the same. So we decided to go to America to go to Expo West and see what was going on over there because we knew we wanted to either be creating an entire new category as Seedlip did or disrupting a big existing category as BrewDog did. And then we didn't get that far in going to America because a week later I was scrolling through Instagram And I saw a wine in a can and I'd never seen wine in a can before. And I immediately became very excited and just something really got me inside. I then spent a week obsessively researching wine in the can. The brand I had seen on Instagram was from America. So I looked into the American market. I saw just how many brands were doing canned wine. I loved the way they were all modernizing wine and really bringing it into the new age. I loved the way it was so functional. You could drink it at a festival on the go, etc. looked into the data in America and was amazed to see how much the category was growing. And then I sort of put together a bit of a pitch deck because I really wanted Jeremy to get as excited as I did. So, you know, it had loads of visuals in there. It had loads of data on America and then it had a bit of information on what's available in single serve format in the UK and in wine. It was the cups with the foil, which you'd obviously be so embarrassed to be seen with. And they're not actually very convenient to drink or the mini plastic pet bottles. And I just, I knew we could do something better. And the more I looked at the wine category, the more I kind of thought, wow, this really hasn't changed. It's really stuffy. It's it's pretty old school. It's so behind the times compared to the other categories. So I pitched the idea to Jeremy and I was nervous. I really wanted him to be as excited as as I was. And I'll, I'll let you tell him your reaction. But yeah, I think it was a pretty positive one.
2: Yeah, I just deleted the email. No, I'm joking. Um <laughs> yeah.
1: I I took that seriously for saying. Yeah,
2: exactly. No, I was um really uh I, I thought it was great. I mean, Lucy, I think, initially saw it through the eyes of a consumer and became obsessed with it because, you know, this is what I want to drink. Why doesn't this exist for me? What I really saw was that um you only had to look at the adjacent categories. So beer had been completely disrupted by the craft beer movement. It mm-hmm. had also done the job of premiumizing the can and making the can completely like, legitimized right, with okay. alcohol. And then the same was happening in in the RTD sector. So, you know, gin and tonics, you only had to look at the shelf to see that gin and tonics, vodka, sodas, all these things were growing like mad.
0: So is what we're saying here, actually, that before the timing wasn't right because consumers would have linked a can to a cheap or nasty
2: or, you know... I think uh, so.
0: Yeah. And whereas because that job had already been done, you were able to capitalise on it?
2: I think a lot of the groundwork had been done by the fact that, um, you know... All the best craft beer brands were being sold in cans, and they right. all looked really cool and really disruptive. So there was read across. Absolutely, um, and yeah. I think that that's that's still a pro- like that's still a work in progress. When you were seeing, you know, again, you only had to get on a train to see that all of a sudden everyone was very proudly sitting there with their gin and tonic in a can or whatever it was, whereas they were still holding their little mini plastic wine bottle kind of in their handbag or sort of hiding it away a bit or putting or having to pour it out into a plastic cup. And none of those things made sense to us.
0: Can I ask a question, though, just on the consumer friction there? So when I have gin and tonic in a can, I will decant it into a glass. And if I was at a festival, I suppose I wouldn't mind drinking it out of a can. For me, the experience of drinking wine is very much the glass as well. You know, and if I get crappy old fashioned glass, kind of the old roundy glasses that your parents would have drunk out that the petrol station gave away for free, you know, when you're growing up, when you did 50 litres of petrol, you got a free glass. So how do consumers find drinking their wine directly out of a can at an event where there are no glasses? Or if they're bringing your wine, buying your wine in Sainsbury's to go for a picnic in Wandsworth Common, are they actually drinking it out of the can?
2: Yeah, I I think on the whole, when... uh, So first of all, we're definitely not trying to replace the wine glass. We see a lot of uh, consumers taking our wine home because they don't want to open a whole bottle or because you know, Uh, one wants red, one wants white. So we're we're by no means uh, dictating to people how they should be drinking. So it's just the single-serve element? Certainly at home, it's definitely the single-serve element. When you're at a picnic, though... The whole point of the can in that environment is because you don't have glasses with you. And and really we should be trying to avoid taking a plastic cup with us just because we of sort of like the aroma on the nose a bit more. And I think that's where, you know, you only have to look at things like we, we did um, Wimbledon tennis this year for the first time. We were meant to do it last year, but it was the first thing that got canceled. And, you know, we sold, um, I can't remember exactly, how came, but we sold almost a quarter of a million pounds worth of wine at Wimbledon this year. They were, Giving away glasses if people ask for them, but on the whole, people were drinking the can, drinking from the can because it was, you know, it was um, fit for purpose. It's functional for the for the occasion. Okay, and the same thing really happens at festivals. They never get sold with with uh, cups or glasses at festivals. And again, we're doing sort of thousands and thousands of cans at these things. So um, we're not prescriptive about how people should consume it. We're not trying to replace the wine glass. We're also actually not trying to replace the wine bottle. We just think there are occasions where. The existing pack formats aren't really fit for purpose and the plastic wine bottle is the perfect example it only looks like that because human beings need to be directed to the fact that this is wine and it should look like a wine bottle but no one mm-hmm. i think virtually no one drinks um 187 mil wine bottles um from the bottle because it's got a r- really narrow um, neck and for some reason people always want to decant those which i get but um that's creating double single-use plastic which just just seems insane
0: Okay, whereas your cans can be recycled with all of the cans in the can bank and we're all used to popping the cans into the can bank and it sounds way nicer than popping your wine bottle into the hole for the wine bottles because that hurts my ears. Does that hurt your ears? Likewise, yeah, Mm. yeah. I mean, that's a really unpleasant experience, isn't it? It's like if you were to look at the experience of recycling, right, and wonder what are all the barriers to getting people to recycle more. That whole glass sound thing, I mean, I do it, but like it's not nice. So, tell us a little bit, Lucy, in terms of your main customers' main channels. Give us a picture of
1: what the business is at now. Where are your big customers? Sure. So, we've got a real multi channel strategy at NICE. The exciting thing about our product is there are so many different places where it's fit for purpose. So, our big retail customers, our biggest retail customer is Sainsbury's. We're in WH Smith Travel, whistle stop in all the train stations. We're obviously that perfect on the go travel product. We're very excited to announce and you're getting the exclusive on this, Fiona. We're launching, by the time this airs, we're going to be available across every single Virgin Atlantic flight.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: I know. If you're flying economy or premium economy and you order wine, the only option that you'll get is nice. And it's really exciting to see that an airline is taking the move towards offering a a more sustainable wine option.
0: Can I ask a question? Yes. What friction are you solving for the staff and the trolley on the airline?
1: So we're solving a number of different frictions. So um, space and stacking and lighter than glass bottles, which they are currently serving on Virgin Atlantic, and then we're also solving single-use plastics. So at the moment, they were pouring wine from a glass into a plastic bot- a plastic cup. But obviously, you'll just be getting a can now.
0: And no broken glass. And it's not a danger for people breaking it and then using it as a weapon. Exactly. Like so many frictions that you're solving. So this is the thing. I'm The reason I'm pointing that out is because I'm always trying to get people who are doing my course and anyone I'm talking to, to look at what is the customer insight and what are their needs and what friction are you trying to solve for them better than alternatives? And this is a brilliant example and I will use it in my video lessons going forward. It's absolutely brilliant. So are we allowed to ask even like a fork what size that business might be? That's huge.
1: Yeah, so they have 5 million customers traveling with them every year. So uh, it's pretty big volume, as you can imagine. It's also solving the problem of uh, no plastic at all. We don't have any plastic within our supply chain and 100% recyclable forever. Um, whereas they were using glass and and pet before. So it's a really exciting one. It's a really game-changing one for our business. The Virgin team have been so fantastic to work with. They really are a family-run business and they're so hands-on and we're just so excited to see that go live.
2: One of the things that was exciting for me is that their first order, um, which we're delivering this week, it was um, more cans than we sold in the whole of our first year.
0: Oh, my God. I saw you tag Holly Branson on LinkedIn have you actually had direct contact with her because of this listing or how does it work
1: so we are a virgin startup brand and holly branson very randomly without us knowing did a post about me the other day with a visual of me and it talked about you know coming up with a business idea that was totally new and we didn't have any forewarning of that going up. So we haven't had any personal contact, but I think that the Virgin family do want to get quite involved in announcing the launch of Nice on on Virgin. So we should have some more stuff to come. And to finish answering your question, we did 65 festivals this year. We're also the perfect, we're obviously the perfect product for sipping whilst dancing in a field. We supply lots of stadia, over 25 stadia, the likes of Aston Villa, Chelsea Football Club, Um, And then lots of quick serve restaurants, theatres, cinemas, basically anywhere you would go and have a a mini bottle of wine, we're looking to to replace that.
0: God, the mini bottle of wine producers must be a bit scared at this point, I would imagine. How does that work then? So if I was a mini bottle of wine producer, I would be looking for a canning operation very quickly.
1: I think so. I think you'd probably be more worried right now on um, getting enough stock because a lot of the mini bottle... Uh, suppliers are having some quite major supply chain issues and packaging issues, but I would imagine lots of them are looking to put their wine into cans.
0: So what does that mean for you guys in terms of the future? How do you keep this proposition defensible? How do you future proof it?
1: So I think we'll future proof it by continuing to build a really strong brand Secondly, by creativity and distribution, which is what we're really strong at, at Nice. And then continuously innovating. We've got new products coming out, which maybe we'll talk about later, but continuously innovating. We're very focused at Nice about putting consumers first and really thinking about that wine moment and and what is the best liquid and and format for that consumer. So always being ahead of innovation.
0: Let's talk about innovation. You said that you're bringing out some new products. Are you allowed to tell us what they are?
2: Yeah, so we're launching a nice bag in box uh, this week, actually. It's going to be launching initially onto Ocado, Amazon and our website. um, And then hopefully with um, some of our big uh, grocery retail partners in the new year. How many litres? It's 2.25. So it's the equivalent of three bottles of wine. It kind of... um, it's a reaction to some insight um a couple of pieces of insight really firstly the data showed us the nielsen data showed us over the last year that um the bag and box category was growing so first of all it's already seven percent of total wine sales in grocery stores which really um surprised me actually and it was growing uh, midway through this year. It was growing at about 35%, which is kind of unheard of in in wine. You know, normally like mid sort of single digit growth would be um, interesting. And the other thing is um, when certainly through the pandemic and beyond, we've seen a lot of people... buying our wine for this portion control element and basically to avoid wastage. So as I said, the wine bottle is is great for so many occasions. I love nothing more than the kind of camaraderie and social aspect of sharing a bottle of wine with people. Um, But there are some occasions where the sort of fairly arbitrary size nature of a bottle and the fact that it's going to be oxidising as soon as you've opened it means you always have to consume wine in portions of 75 centilitres over about 36 hours.
0: It's a disaster. And if you open it now, then you have to drink tomorrow. That's what really annoys me. I have a glass of wine on a Sunday night, then you're drinking on a Monday.
2: Exactly. And then so either you don't buy it at all or you buy it and feel obliged to drink it or you end up wasting it. And like none of Mm -hmm. those outcomes are really ideal. So this is some insight we we saw from like macro data, um, but also from talking to our consumers and understanding what were their motivations, you know, um, behind having our wine at home. So when the pandemic kicked off, we went from doing very... Small amount of revenue, really, uh, proportionately on e-commerce. To suddenly, Amazon was our biggest customer in April last year. We sold over forty grand worth of wine just on Amazon in April, and wow. so that showed that people were willing to buy wine on their phone and on their laptops to be delivered to home. And we needed to try and understand why that was. And and the um, lion's share of the feedback was what I mentioned earlier, which is that people either just want one glass or, or one, you know, a partner wants red, the, the other partner wants white, and they don't want to have to compromise. And so. Bag in box wine um, stays fresh for six weeks after opening. Actually, realistically, it's actually longer than that, but that's what the manufacturers like to put on the front of the pack. But six weeks um, fresh and it's having wine on tap. You never know when you're going to want to have one glass or three or two or whatever it is and which days of the week. So, um, yeah, we're really looking forward to that launching. And I think it'd be a great SKU specifically for the off trade and actually e-commerce as well.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. Do you guys have to think about responsibility and drinking as part of your culture being an alcohol company? How does that work?
1: Yeah, so throughout our comms, we just always make sure that everything we show and say is trying to promote drinking responsibly, you know, not using language like, you know, getting wasted or, you know, encouraging sort of, a you know, a big night binge or anything. So we are just quite... Um, tight on on checking that everything we do is going to promote responsible drinking. And there've, you know, been a couple of times in the past where maybe some of the language hasn't, so we've changed it or decided not to post it.
2: The Portman Group is uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Portman group, it's sort of an industry-led body which um sort of self-almost like self-regulates the alcohol space. So actually I okay. think Britain leads the way on this. Uh, other places around the world certainly in america is is much more kind of loose-lipped when it comes to this kind of thing but in britain the portman group is um as i said like an industry-run body which basically self-regulates they don't necessarily have legislative power but what they do have is weight in the market so if you fall foul of the portman group code then um then you're going to know about it and so i think that's actually a really good thing and there are brands out there who sell close to the wind and Um, And we we want to, you know, still be a young, fun, interesting, exciting, disruptive brand. But we we definitely don't want to cross over that, um, you know, cross that line.
0: What are your main channels for marketing, communications, engagement, brand engagement and building your community?
2: We um, so... It's sort of almost it's changed a fair bit over the the two and a half years that we've been going. Obviously, in the early days, it was very social focused. You know, bootstrapping a business, um it's all about acting as if you're a much bigger brand than you are. So we used to do lots of partnerships, which would leverage the bigger budgets of other partners. So we are, in our first year, we did an amazing partnership with Nasty Gal, for example, where um, we just supplied some wine and sent our brand manager over to Ibiza for an influencer trip. We got about fifty grand worth of value from it. They posted it to their four million followers. We had this nasty a nice partnership going Um, that was great more more recently um, we have actually just launched our first above the line campaign we've been um putting up digital boards and um six sheets and 16 sheets on the underground and um up the escalators and stuff that's been really cool to see it come to life and and the amount of feedback we've had from that's been amazing and it coincided with even though we ended up um doing it in sort of late September, October, where the ideal time would have been sort of July. That was, again, further bootstrapping where we just, um, we decided that for, you know, a smaller amount of money, we could fit into wherever there were gaps in the media plan. Um, And that's been great. It's coincided with um, our four biggest weeks this year in Sainsbury's. How do you strip out? So
0: you've had four big weeks in Sainsbury's. Was there a promotion on or?
2: No, we, we have an everyday low price.
0: All right. So you will be able to attribute the posters
2: in some way to driving that awareness. Syndrome. To some degree. Yeah. I think um we're fairly open about the fact that this um this first foray into the above the line um, you know, media buying world and advertising, um, real test and learn for us, you know, very tactical. Um this isn't that sort of big nutritional numbers eyes on screen sort of thing for us it's it's about showing up and being disruptive and learning so um yeah the feat, the reaction's been amazing I, I'm really looking forward to doing bigger you know more badass stuff in the future
0: sure but it's all about isn't it Using your marketing spend when you get to a big enough size that you have this luxury, but investing in long-term brand building with some activities and short-term sales generation with other activities and putting measures in place that you're able to track the results, you know, so the measures for that might not be sales at all, but they might be brand awareness
2: in the London region, for example, and how that increases over the time. The objective was never actually to grow rate of sale in this instance. I When I was at ProperCorn we did a huge... Um... You know, the first time we ever did Above the Line it was a huge campaign. Um, you know, we wrapped 10 London buses for six weeks. We had two installations. We, we spent a hell of a lot of money. And but we did also go on to promotion for like our deepest ever promotions through that time. So um, the objective was very single mindedly rate of sale and, and building kind of we're here to stay advocacy. Um, this is actually just our first sort of dipping the toes. And um, so, yeah, the increase in rate of sale is a nice, um, you know, added extra, to be honest with you. You've
0: used the word bootstrapping twice now. However, I'm aware that you have just closed a round of funding. Can you talk to us about bootstrapping versus funding? When was the right time for you guys to go out and get funding? When did you do the bootstrapping and how did you decide that you needed to make that transition?
2: Yeah. So when we, we always knew that launching this business would be quite capital intensive, you know, um, to produce one can, you have to produce a hundred thousand. So the first, you know, the first thing we did when we launched the business was we got, you know, over a hundred thousand pound bill for for our first production. Um, we were also, you know, wanted to get ahead of time in hiring a team um, and, you know, do brand building, all these things. So we sure. knew that it was capital intensive service. So we, we raised some money early on, um, just, to, you know, just enough to get us through those first, I guess, couple of years. Um, and we raised it from angel investors. Um, some of the people I'd worked for had got involved, so Cassandra, Stavro, and Ryan Conn from, um, from Propercorn, back dust us, and um, a couple of other kind of big names from in the industry. Um, and the reason I talk about bootstrapping is um, we were always going to need some capital. Lucy and I invested a, a small amount of our own, well, all of our own money, but it was a small amount <laughs> to begin with to get the brand off the ground. Um, but the reason we want to bootstrap is... Um, we need to be able to demonstrate that we can grow a business that is that is underlying profitability. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, that there are businesses out there that can prove they can grow, but have, you know, triple digit EBITDA losses, which is really, really scary. So
0: you needed to prove that you had a business that the gross margin was going to allow you to pay for once you'd got the product cost and the transport cost out of the way your gross margin was going to allow you to pay for all of the people and all of the marketing investment that you needed to do to make that
2: business grow further. Exactly, yeah. So we've now got to a point where, you know, our retail sales va- or market value um, in the UK is approaching 7 million sort of run rate. Wow. And this is, and you know, and we've only raised, we've raised less than half a million quid to date.
0: Are you allowed to say bootstrapping if you've had money put in though? I mean, maybe it's different for you guys because you had that cost of entry up front, right? Whereas lots of businesses don't have that cost of entry up front.
2: Yeah, well, I might be misusing the term bootstrapping, but f- what bootstrapping means to me is yeah. being really cautious and frugal and sensible about how you spend money. Only spending what's in the gross margin on building the business. Exactly, yeah. And essentially just just looking at everything and saying, how can we how can we do this in a way that will appear like we've spent X but let's actually spend, you know, 0.1 X, if that makes sense. So, okay. you know, great advice. Yeah, exactly. And that, Play that, bigger. that's what bootstrapping is for me is like, let's not go and just hire mm. the most expensive um, hired gun salespeople. Let's go and hire interns that, you know, we have a team of four salespeople right now and all of them have come through our internship program. Um, and they, they are just like brilliant employees to have They're sponges for knowledge and development. And, it's got us to where we are today you know we're in the process that we've just hired a couple of uh, senior hires and we've got two more to go but um that that for me is what bootstrapping is it's like showing that okay. you can do it you can hustle um and that's what's make actually i think makes you a more interesting business for for further Absolutely. investment and this this investment Absolutely. now is gonna is gonna help us kind of double down on the growth that we've already seen this year We've got some amazing existing investors already. And so what we were able to do at the start of this is go to our existing investor base and explain that we wanted to um, go and identify a couple of key new angel investors. We did it very discreetly. We didn't go out to market about it really. And um, we just set a couple of targets that we had in mind of people that we thought would be great to come into the business, but also that our existing investors, we knew that lots of them would want to follow on. So we asked them the question. What would be the ideal amount you'd like to put into the business at this point? And uh, failing that, if we don't have enough capacity, would you like to essentially exercise your preemption rights, which means their option to not get diluted? And we had great support from our existing investors, which then gave us the space to go and um, identify, um, you know, these new angels that we had in mind. Uh, The first of which is Jasper Cuppage, who uh, is and was the founder of Camden Town Brewery. So mm. I'd long admired his business just as a beer drinker, but um, there are three things I think Camden Town did amazingly. Um, the first was that um, they built a disruptive brand in a traditional category that was able to, I think, make the foray into into the mainstream. So it really made you feel like you were participating in this really cool and edgy sort of. Um, craft beer world but actually you know the majority of their sales are just great tasting lager and actually i think they did an amazing job at that second thing i think they did if ever i've spoken to anyone from camden town brewery um who worked there they always say that um almost without fail, that it's the best place they will ever work. Not just the place they the best place they have worked, but they're so sure that they won't beat that working environment. I find that absolutely amazing. And then the third thing I think that they did really well is they had a successful exit. Um, and what I mean by that is not just the founder and founding team running off into the sunset with the mo- most money in their bank, actually a successful exit where... They sold um, in 2015 to AB InBev when they were doing, you know, somewhere around 10 million of turnover, I think, and they um, they've grown that by 600% in that five years. So it was it was a win 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 exit where sure. they realised they needed the help and expertise and and funding from a big, well, the biggest brewery on the planet. So and then um, we also um, we wanted to make sure that we had a good gender balance on the uh, on the cap table. So we we historically had always done that um, really well. Um, and we've got to a point in this round where actually it felt like we were a little bit too male heavy, um, which, which doesn't quite fit with a, a female, a predominantly female run business. Um, and so, yeah, we, um, we've also brought on, uh, Grace Beverly, who is the co-founder and CEO of, um, Tala. She's a, um, a Tala is a female sportswear brand and Shreddy, which is a, um, another business she runs and yeah she's getting involved as well she's also an influencer and she's just um i think funny the c- cool story here is we went to the team and said if hypothetically if we were to approach one sort of young female businesswoman to, about getting involved in our business who would it be and um the team landed on grace as being that person and so we thought well what have we got to lose by going to ask brilliant yeah, we got in touch and then I uh, had a phone call and and yeah, and she she agreed to get involved in the business, which is which is awesome to be honest.
0: That's amazing. So, we need to move on because of time now, right? So, I just wanted to quickly wrap up with the investment piece by saying, "Jeremy, how will that money be
2: used now, the money that you've just raised?" So, um what we're doing with that money is uh we're investing ahead of time in team so lucy mentioned we're already a team of eight now we're going to be a team of 12 uh by january and um at least three of those hires are going to be senior leadership hires um and that that's again where bootstrapping up to now has been so great because now we okay. can bring in these people to um to you know step change the business um also launching new product innovation so not only the bag in box but also some other exciting um Innovation we have planned um, for continuing to disrupt the wine industry um, and then um, continuing to bootstrap, but having a little bit more of a war chest to go and, you know, really establish ourselves as the disrupt, you know, the wine disruptor in, in sure. the UK and beyond. Um, so, yeah.
0: So that's amazing. And Lucy, you're ahead of people and culture, aren't you? Yes, I am. So does that mean you're also in charge of recruitment?
1: I have been in charge of recruitment. Yes, I sort of could call myself a bit of a headhunter now, which my fiancé hates me saying because he is actually a headhunter. <laughs>
0: so you're recruiting for three senior roles. How do you make sure that you get people at just the right level? Because this is a really hard one. Your first senior hires really hard, isn't it?
1: It is really hard. So we've done a couple of things that seem to have been quite successful. First of all, as a business, no offense to recruiters, but we decide we choose not to work with recruiters. It's a business rule of ours. We want to create a brand that people know about and they want to join. We want to build an amazing culture that we're famous for. So if we do that successfully, we we shouldn't need recruiters. And up until this point, we haven't. So how I've recruited is we have a rule that we look for people with a combination of, in our our senior hires, we don't look for people that just have big business experience. We wouldn't hire someone that has just big business experience because working in a startup business is so different from big business experience. So they can have worked in big business and small business, but it, it can't just be big business. So we target brands that we really admire. So for example, our on-trade leader role, I've been targeting the breweries. So I've been going onto LinkedIn, I've been going through Brewdog, Seedlip, Sipsmith, Meantime, and I've just been contacting people. I've had a scan of their LinkedIn. I, you know, I like the look of them, I like their experience, and I've just contacted them that way. And that's how we found all of our hires to date. Wow, okay. Is that
0: allowed? Are you allowed
1: to poach people from
0: other jobs in your industry? Yeah. You are, God.
1: (laughs) I mean, I haven't picked any of my friends' brands, so... Uh, and I mean, I guess, that you know, that's what recruiters do. And actually, I had some feedback from a couple of people that they actually wanted to talk to me because they loved the way the founder, the co-founder got in touch. They said it was so refreshing that you weren't a recruiter. And I, I was so impressed that it was the co-founder messaging me. That you're going to be putting a big sector
0: of the economy out of business at this rate, guys. So let's give a shout out for the roles you're currently recruiting for.
1: Yes. So we have appointed an amazing girl called Kiati for our off-trade leader. And then we are still hiring for an on-trade leader and a marketing director. So if anyone's interested, please get in touch.
0: Now, can I ask a question? Marketing director, is that performance marketing or is it brand marketing or is it both
1: It's a bit of both. So it's really our our head of marketing position, but we don't really love to use titles like head of. It's not really how we roll at NICE. Okay. So look, we've spent
0: a huge amount of time talking, but there's one thing that's really important, I think, that we talk about, which is your culture of honesty and honest feedback and how you guys work together as co-founders. Can we briefly touch on all of the magic that you guys have created in terms of The culture you are promoting within your business?
1: Yes. So answering that question specifically to the co-founding relationship, but then a lot of the rules we live by obviously filter through to the rest of the team. So there's a couple of rules we really live by at NICE and anyone that's listened to any of our podcasts before will definitely have heard us talking about direct feedback. So Direct feedback is something that we're super passionate about. Whenever we interview anyone to come in and join the nice team, we specifically ask them, how do you take direct feedback? Can you give some examples of when you've had it in the past? How do you feel about giving it? We we need to make sure we have people in the team that see direct feedback as a really good thing because ultimately what it's meant to do is it's just meant to help that person become better or stronger. And it's ultimately also meant to help the business. It's never meant to offend anyone but I think as you know English people can be quite awkward we don't like to offend so it can be quite challenging to do so in our business we really encourage direct feedback direct in the moment feedback you don't you don't wait for a week to say it and um, you say it there and then you say direct feedback you you kind of start it by saying that and then you just give some feedback. Can I ask a question about that so How do you make sure that the person giving the direct
0: feedback has the self-awareness to peel out the bits that are actually about them? So, for example, if I'm in my 20s, if I'm annoyed at something someone has done and I know how to give that a constructive feedback. But really, what I don't realise, because I haven't yet had 25 years of experience, that this is more about me and my issues or my insecurity. How do you make sure that the direct feedback doesn't almost become becomes heavy, you know, and something that people can use even because they've got loads of chips. Does
1: that make sense? It does. I think we probably lead by example. And when we do our induction at NICE, we have two entire slides on examples of really good feedback and then examples of when someone hasn't taken feedback well or when they maybe haven't delivered it well. But then we also ensure that the team see us giving direct feedback to other people, Jeremy and I, to each other. So we show them examples of of how it's done. Yeah, okay, okay. But it is an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah.
2: it's not a perfect science by any means. And that's, I think, the whole point of it is to address right from the beginning and set the expectation that nearly everyone is it, finds it difficult giving direct feedback and nearly everyone finds it difficult taking it. Like it feels nearly always like a personal attack. So you have Just. some people can work that through in two or three seconds. Take some other people minutes or longer or days. And so it's just about acknowledging that like that is a natural reaction to these things. It's not nice giving it, it's not nice receiving it. And we also encourage, we always encourage to give examples because direct feedback without examples is, is, is hard to, you know, it's, it's literally not backed up. So it's hard to back up. And then, we also, you know, if there are if someone's got pushback and said, I, I understand what you're saying on this, this and this, this and this. But here's why I did it. And I think I was within my rights to do it. So, we, you know, we, we do we don't expect people to just bow down and, and take everything because if they disagree, then they should certainly air it. That's great.
0: Do you remember the last time you got direct feedback, either one of you? Yeah. 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 Like it's just a constant thing.
1: Yeah we do it all of the time and and we do these coaching sessions we've got an amazing chairman a guy called Shilan Patel and the three of us do coaching sessions which is when we give you know feedback on areas that we think we could improve and then Jeremy and I have this you know, red flag system. So we're both working on a couple of things that we know we need to be better at. And if one of us isn't quite doing as well as we could, we do a red flag. There's a red flag emoji. So it's very easy to just pull the red flag emoji. But I think the thing about Jeremy and I, I think there's lots of reasons why we're strong co-founding, um, pair, but we we love feedback. Like we love getting it. We love hearing ways of how we can improve. You know, we, we don't get upset or offended, as Jeremy said. It's sometimes a bit difficult when you first hear it, but you know it's being said to you because that person wants you to improve.
0: Yeah, and it's actually all about liking self development,
2: isn't it? Exactly. I can give an example, uh, which I've been trying to be conscious of during this call, even, which is that um, I have a capacity to whenever I hear a question that I know the answer to to want to launch straight into the answer. And when, when you're a partnership or where, you know, you might be the d- directing the question to either of us, um, it's easy to kind of get to the end of a meeting and realise you've sort of been speaking for 70% of yeah. it. About making space. Exactly, making space and taking time to, to um, you know, to let everyone have their say. So it's something yeah. I've been working on. I'm going to review this and see how I did.
1: <laughs> no, you've, you've done well.
0: <laughs> My daughter, who's now too grown up for this but when she was much younger the only way to describe it to her was to say there's only so much air in the room and everybody needs to use the air and if you're talking all the time the air is really noisy and also you're using it for all your breaths so you
1: need to share the air
2: yeah share <laughs> oh, the air. i like that
1: that's so lovely yeah I'll just say one other thing, and then Jeremy, I'll, I'll hand over to your things. Another thing that we've introduced, again, through our amazing chairman, Shillen, and we haven't done this yet, but we'll, I'm sure we'll do it before Christmas, is something called Date Night, which Shillen used to do with his business partner. And it's when you go on a, you go on a date, you go to a restaurant, you, you, know, you do something, something away from work, you go on a walk or whatever. And you both just talk about how your relationships, you know, working, the the areas that are working, the areas that could be improved on. You recognize your, you know, your different different strengths and how you can be helping each other. So it's just purely an activity to talk about how you two are working and and interacting with each other.
0: Well, that's really good advice. So, look, let's wrap up by... Talking about growth over the next 12 months, where is it going to come from?
2: And what are you most excited about? We've had an amazing year since, I mean, COVID was obviously difficult for everyone. It was as difficult for us as I think anyone, we lost our, almost our entire hospitality business. You know, we were expecting that to be 55, 60% of our business that year. But since the reopening, um, it's been great. We're in, as a business, we're in 300% growth uh, year on year at the moment. Um, and that's continuing to grow with the Virgin News. And so, um, you know, we're we're looking to at least double our business in size next year from obviously a much bigger base. Um We're excited that that's coming from lots of different channels, from new innovation projects, um, from new markets. Uh, So, yeah, we're we're really excited for the future of NICE.
1: That's fabulous. I'm looking forward to trying all of your new products, Lucy. We'll send them all to you. Don't worry. They'll be out in a couple of weeks. Thank you. That would be really wonderful. I've got your address from last time, so I'll post you some more.
0: (laughs) Great wines, guys. You've got to try them. They're really lovely. A lovely feel to the can as well which is great. Look, thank you both so much for your time this morning. It's been really wonderful to hear about the journey that you guys have come on and particularly inspiring to hear about how the culture that you're building in your business and how you manage people and good luck with your recruitment. Anyone listening to this, if you think this sounds like a company you'd like to work for, contact Lucy on LinkedIn and I'm sure she'd be delighted to hear from you.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Fiona. It's great. Free advertising, isn't it? Love it. Amazing. (laughs) Bootstrapping.
0: (laughs) bootstrapping yeah yeah you can pay me in wine and then we're quits okay yeah all right listen thank you so much guys have a great day and Jeremy we are going to be able to meet in person on Friday yes great at the Bread and Jam Social looking forward to that okay super cool